a lot of the time I decided men's work was what I really wanted to get into was around me too. Hmm. I consider myself a long, a lifelong feminist. A lot of my, my undergrad classes in developmental psychology and my electives were in like radical feminist theory and stuff like that. You know, I, I was really almost sort of like on the side of like shaming my own, eradicating the maleness out of me, right? At a certain point I had to accept like, no, I'm in this body. My gender expresses in this way. I can't run from it. Right. I have to just step into my male role and say, okay, how do I show up in, in me too? Like, how do I, where's my voice in this? And I was like, I, I could continue to be like, yeah, men are pieces of shit and all the fucked up shit that men do, you know, it's not really helping anyone. back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay Locke, and today I'm sitting down and doing some soul surgery with my friend, David. For those of you that loved Sarah Russell's episode on relationship anarchy, you are bound to love today's show with David. Both Sarah and David practice skills for change and work on that with their clients. Now, for those of you that have been longtime listeners of the show, we've done a lot of episodes with relationship coaches, sex and embodiment coaches, therapists that are all women. And so I loved bringing David on today to talk about the male experience, to talk about having ownership over our choices. He takes a very critical stance on psychedelics, which I absolutely loved, and even dives into the Me Too movement. So for those of you that are interested in how to own your masculinity in a healthy way, how that trickles over to your relationships to life and the way that you explore the world, you are going to love today's episode. While you're listening, be sure to be sipping on my favorite electrolyte drink, Element, L-M-N-T. Oh, you guys, I know you hear me talk about it every week, but it is absolutely delicious. I am sipping on a grapefruit element right now, which yes, you can't get. It was a limited time flavor. And so I stocked up on it when I could, and it is still my go-to salt, my go-to flavor that I whip out on special occasions, like recording a beautiful podcast like today's episode. Until next week, enjoy the show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Get Psyched. I am sitting down with David Stockhausen today, which is something I'm really, really excited about because for longtime listeners of the show or even newer listeners of the show, I have a lot of women, whether it's therapists, life coaches, sex and relationship coaches. um, And I'm so excited to have the male perspective on this because I only know my perspective. So I'm really excited to have you on today and talk all things, kind of the men's work that you do, how that bleeds over into relationships and communication styles. So before we get into that, for listeners who are not aware of who you are, would you mind just letting us, giving us a little elevator pitch? Yeah, totally. So my name is David Stockhausen. Um, I have a private practice in um, Santa Cruz, California, where I work partners, uh, groups, and men um, around mostly communication issues and some relational skills. I'm really focused on skill building. So I also have an Instagram. You can find me at, at ironjohn.coaching, where I give like little one-minute tips and tools and things like that. And um, I'm also passionate about psychedelic integration work and sort of 
take a bit of a critical approach to that. So it's like to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I love the critical approach to psychedelics because I think that, um, you know, my listeners are not are not uh, strangers to the stance that I take that they can be incredible tools mm-hmm. and that there's also a shadowy side of it. And I feel right. as though they have been almost, I, I'm very appreciative for the psychedelic revolution that we're in and that it's starting conversation and that there's less shame and stigma around it. And I think that that also creates more availability and more curiosity and people kind of dive into these experiences without an understanding of set and setting or having this peak experience and having no idea how to integrate it. So perhaps we can start there. Maybe that kind of weaves into the men's work you do. I'm not sure, but would love to hear your stance on that. Yeah, for sure. So important what you just said. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, similar to what we saw with the, like the cannabis boom, you know, um, where it started with this sort of, you know, legalization in terms of medical use. And there was all this sort of information about there about out there about, you know, how amazing this, this is a tool for people for, you know, medically and everything. And while I think a lot of that's true, it was really just a stepping stone for the sort of capitalist cowboys that kind of come in and start running the show. Mm-hmm. And um, now it's, it's, it's almost silly, right? Like the, this, <laughs> and I have great friends who are in the industry and I don't mean to sort of put anyone down. Um, everyone's got to make a living somehow. And I get that, but um, we have a reality that we live in, which is, you know, late stage capitalism. And that model you know, is about competition and scarcity. And that's how the, the ball keeps rolling. And so as psychedelics enter into this space, I'm watching that happen, right? And it's not even legal yet. Right. Um, and there's so many questions we're not asking. There's so many things we're, we're sort of like, we still need more information on. Mm-hmm. Um, so where I feel like my role comes in, I mean, and again, I'll just to, to sort of parrot you, psychedelics have been an, an amazing tool in my own life and my own um healing journey and continue to be you know my relationship particularly with psilocybin is a strong one right um i'm so thankful that i've had the that i've had from therapists from um nurses (laughs) that have gone into the psychedelic world you know um that have really shown me how to integrate that work. And it's not just about the medicine, right? It's not about the peak experience in these sort of giant aha moments, right? It's about how do I weave that into my daily experience? How do I weave that into my daily practice? How do I, what am I gonna actually do with those insights in the world? Um, And I just don't see enough um, folks out there promoting that integrative experiences and this sort of, the shininess of, um, you know, what's happening in the, in the movement and things like that. It's starting to come out, but, um, yeah, I would just say that that's sort of my general approach is a critical one. Like, let's really take a critical look at what's happening here. Yeah. So when you are taking that critical approach and you're talking about the lack of integration work, what are some tools that you might use in your own practice? What are some things that you invite your clients into experiencing when they're trying to integrate this, this psychedelic experience? Great question. Yeah. I think so much of integration actually starts in preparation, right? 
way that we're prepared to go into this experience, I mean, from selecting the right practitioner or, or the right medicine, understanding how it's going to maybe interact with our body or um, understanding the group of people. If we're going to, you know, talk about something like, you know, or San Pedro or something like that, or even peyote, you know, like who's the group that we're inviting ourselves into um, and, and not letting ourselves get so like just excited to be doing the thing that we're forgetting to sort of do our prior, you know, preparation. So mm -hmm. I like to work with clients on setting up, okay, after you land, <laughs> you know, in other words, if we're going to do- Once you come back to this planet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> If it were another way to look, I mean, I, I love to use metaphors. So I'll just use a couple of the metaphors, you know, on the one hand, um, if it's like surgery, we're doing, we're doing like sort of soul surgery um, or psychic surgery on ourselves. Well, any good, you know, surgeon will send you to PT, right? And the same thing is necessary, you know, given this sort of soul surgery with psychedelics. And um, so again, the, the, the other metaphor I might use is psychedelics are, are a lot like uh, if you can imagine your yourself as a your or your mind or your experiences as a garden. Psychedelics sort of give an opportunity to till in all those annuals, right? Sort of we've got all this fresh soil, we've sort of unearthed a bunch of things, and there's a real opportunity to plant new annual plants. And what I mean mm -hmm. by annual plants, I mean behaviors and practices. Yeah. Things like and this is where the multidisciplinary approach comes in. It's like what works for, and I think you've talked about this, you know, what works for you works for you. It doesn't have to be everything under the sun, right? Um, but if breath work works for you, that's, let's start to integrate that. So I actually promote some of this before your psychedelic experience. Like go try a bunch of these other healing modalities, acupuncture, breath work, yoga, um, running, <laughs> you know, um, different things like try, you know, quitting caffeine, try experiment with what changes your experience of your life day to day. Mm -hmm. Because then, you know, after the, this peak experience, you're going to have more insight onto, into these tools that you might be able to use and then start some new practices. Yeah. One really of the, go ahead. One of the best ways that it was kind of explained to me, um, I was getting ready to go down to a retreat, plant medicine retreat in Costa Rica. And you do a big dieta beforehand and all these different things. And um, I'm sure people, I'm being a little elusive. People who are listening can probably uh, <laughs> assume what I'm talking about here. But um, it was that the practice, right? The medicine started the minute I got that call. Yep. And then it only deepened with every meal I consciously chose to fuel my body with. Right. Yeah. And I am someone that loves animal products. I love coffee, <laughs> like yeah. give me caffeine. And so the second it was like, you are essentially going vegan. Mm -hmm. You are not going to ingest caffeine. You're not doing any of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, I got really sick. I got really sick for about a week and it was a good wake up call for me to be like, wow, you let and it's funny that I think of caffeine as a substance now, but you let this substance kind of control your life. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing workouts, what do you mean? I can't fuel myself with a steak afterwards, right. you know, like, so you right. start looking through a whole new lens and mm -hmm. whether or not, you know, like here I am years after the experience, I drink coffee, not nearly as much. 
-hmm. I ingest animal products. I do all these things, but I'm far more mindful. And I have, it's kind of that, like you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? So I have that somatic experience of what doing that different life was like, or what that different diet or different experience was like. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, in my opinion, I'd love to hear your take on this just as profound as some of the medicine. Oh, hundred percent. Absolutely. And in the sort of the crescendo of what I was getting to with integration is working with some teacher or some helper, right? Like, you know, we need to upgrade our skills. I, I, I think not many people would argue with the fact that we're relatively unskilled in our culture mm. at having hard conversations, talking about our truth, right? You know, getting into this, this nitty gritty stuff, we're getting better. So one of the things that I think is the best integrative tool is working with a coach, a therapist, right? And it's, and being, you know, um, really discerning about who you choose to work with and what you're actually learning, you know? Um, I'm all about teaching people skills to communicate their truth more, right? And to be able to hear more, hold more, you know, in, in a sense, build our tolerance for integrated complexity. And what I mean by that is, you know, where multiple things can be true at the same time, right? Mm, um, yes. And that's critically important, right? We're not sort of so in this dualistic, you know, in-group, out-group, right, wrong um, mentality all the time. Um, it's a complex world. Relationships are complex, right? And they're so complex. So there's so much, in it, you know, uh, that we can learn about how to, how to really relate. And if, if I've gotten any message from medicine work, it's focus on your relationships, take care of your body, right? really simple things. You know, that's like people are like, oh, your insights you know, from saying drink water, take care of your body, love people, you know, <laughs> yeah, like very simple things, like stuff that you learned in kindergarten or, or hopefully earlier, you know. Right. Or maybe you didn't get to learn those and now you're learning them. So how do you do that? Well, you work with someone that teaches you actual communication skills, you know, teaches you about power, how power works in relationships, why we might not be um, able to get what we want, right? Why we're stuck, these things. So important, right? Yeah. So one thing I love that you said was that there, actually, I loved a lot of what you just said, but something I want to focus on is the reality that there are multiple truths. I tell my clients all the time, you know, a truth, you don't know the truth. And it's not that some person, mine, yours, your partners, whoever's is more valid or less valid. Um, it's just that your experience is a hundred percent true to you. I can't take that away from you. And your partner experienced that conversation a completely different way. And that's a hundred percent true to them. And then the objective truth is probably somewhere in the middle, if we're being honest, but right how do you get your clients to see kind of the both and yes, yours can be true and some other truth can be just as valid. Great. Yeah. So one of the tools that I love to use sounds really simple, but does a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and I learned this tool from my teacher, Nancy Shanto. Um, and <clears throat> it's the three questions. What's true. What's not true. And what's also true. So first we have to identify a story. So let's just pick any story. Like I'm, I don't belong, you know, or I'm not good enough. Right? And maybe there's a reason why I'm not good enough. 
money. Let's just use that one. So not letting ourselves off the, the hook about that first, what's true about that is really, is really critical because I think there's some part of us that knows, right? From a certain context, there's truth there, right? Maybe compared to this person, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money to participate in this private club or something like that. You know? I don't have enough money to do the exact things that I want to do. That's true. What's not true is that there's actually so many people in the world that have so much less than I do. And so what really is enough? That third question of what's also true is kind of tricky, but it's basically saying missing in the story. You know, what information also makes that story true. So what also makes that story true is that, you know, we live in a culture that places great emphasis on physical wealth. You know, that's true. That makes that story true. We may have internalized ideas from our family, from our particular friend group or culture, from school. We may have internalized all these ideas that we're operating under as true. And if we haven't challenged those, then of course that story that I don't have enough money is true. So now we get the chance to invite in a new story. How do I want to write it? Right? Mm, How do yes. I want to write my life? Well, you know what? I have enough money to like keep all my fingers and toes and, you know, walk around and drink water and love people. Like, is that enough? What's enough? Right. Yeah. And I think that's a really critical question. So just inviting people into that space where it's sort of like, I can start to think in a little bit with a little more integrated complexity, right? A little more sort of expanded view and recognize like, yes, there, I can validate that story. Yeah, sure. Don't have enough money according to some, right? And yet I also do according to others. And so what's, it's now my choice. What do I want to do with that information? Yeah. With clients, I think it's the most, especially men that I work with, right? Recognizing your responsibility is simply just recognizing what your choices are and taking ownership for the ones you're choosing, right? Um, sounds simple, not so simple, right? But um, inviting people into that realm of choice, you know, pulling us out of this realm of powerlessness, which is like, oh, I don't have enough money to, okay, wait a minute. I do and I don't. I'm right. going to choose to say that I, I have enough for now. And what I want to do is this. Maybe I do want to make more money. Great. That's a choice. You've now owned it. Great. You can go do that. Yes. I think so many times we, and myself included, of course, anytime I really say we, I should say I, because <laughs> <laughs> I am speaking from my own experience. Many times I will find myself in victimhood, right? Like I feel like my hand is being forced to make this decision and I have the blinders on of what I think the one decision there or the one option there is. And so just being invited into that space and like taking the blinders off and saying, okay, yes, you can choose to go down that path. And this one's available. And have you thought about this? And that can be, I know I had a big, big struggle with this, especially in therapy when I was so married to and identified so heavily with the choices that I was making, but they were such unconscious choices. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden 
my therapist was like, yeah, we'll take ownership for the fact that you're in this position. And I was like, well, no, it was forced on me and did it. And she's like, no, 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 no. Like, let's, let's reverse engineer this and think about all of the unconscious decisions that had to get us to this point. Mm-hmm. Fuck man, that is hard to like sure, own, yeah. to own that. So um, I'm especially interested in how you do that with your clients and especially in men's work. And what does that kind of reverse engineering look like? Yeah, great question. So this thing about um, victimhood and taking responsibility is tricky, right? Because in some sense, we, we are a victim to our experience of childhood, right? We didn't have control over what was getting internalized at that point, right? The, you know, the experience of that zero to five child is, is really defined by powerlessness. And we're looking to caregivers to define for us, you know, what is safety? You know, what's okay, what's not okay? And um, we internalize that and that stuff isn't our fault. It's true, right? So um, a part of this victim story that's kind of tricky is that, you know, that zero to five experience, we're actually not, we are victims of whatever our caretakers were telling us was right and wrong, safe, not safe, okay. You know, in this visceral way, we were just embodying that, right? We're, in, we're literally building our, our bodily armor that stage of life, really trying to understand um, how to operate in the world. And we may, as adults, be still operating under these, like you said, unconsciously, right? Making these unconscious choices based on this internalized oppression, right? Mm. And so it's particularly, I think, what's helpful for men that I work with is validating that. And particularly men of this generation have grown up around enough feminism that there is a lot of shame, I think. And men that I work with, like, they really do want to connect. They really do want to heal. They really do want good relationships. They really do want to take responsibility. Um, But there's so much shame around even starting. Right. Um, Right. And um, that's why I named my coaching practice Iron John, which maybe I regret a little bit because using my own name might have been better. But um, (laughs) John all the time. That's fine. but that was Robert Bly's argument. Like if we're gonna support feminists, we actually have to work on healing men and not shaming them, right? And, and inviting them to take responsibility for their choices. Um, so I think really just so much of the early work I do with men is just sort of like saying, of course, like, of course this has been hard. Yeah. They're struggling. And as much as they have grown up around the feminist movement, they've also grown up. Brene Brown puts it perfectly right when she talks about how scary it must be for men to be vulnerable their entire lives, whether that was at football camp or from dad or from whoever saying, you know, don't be a pussy or like, don't cry. Right. All these different things like those were all internalized, too. And I had to adopt this mindset to be with the in crew to not lose my tribe, to not, you know, to be accepted, to, to find secure attachment. And so to start questioning that I can only imagine would be really scary. Wait, is like, are these thoughts even mine? Do I even align with this kind of mindset? Yeah. It can be deeply, you know, like disorienting and unsettling. And, um, mostly it's like the early work, you know, is, is really building trust, um, with, Mm -hmm. with another man to be vulnerable in this way. And um, I'll say, you know, like you said earlier, 
that you know <laughs> I think you said it really well you're like anytime I say we I should say I <laughs> yeah. right like I'm here because of my own experience as a cisgendered you know male who arguably has is the intersection of a lot of privilege right mm-hmm. and my responsibility with that privilege is to understand it and take responsibility for my choices and show up and this is the work I want to do is this is me taking responsibility for it right I told the story you know this is a lot of the time I decided men's work was what I really wanted to get into was around me too hmm. I consider myself a long a lifelong feminist and I, I even went to you know um, a lot of my my undergrad classes in developmental psychology and my electives were in like radical feminist theory and stuff like that you know I, I was really almost sort of like on the side of like shaming my own you know like eradicating the maleness out of me right ah. and at a certain at a certain point I had to accept like no I'm in this body right um I express my my gender expresses in this way I can't run from it right I have to just step into my male role and say okay how do I show up in in me too like how do I where's my voice in this and I was like I I could continue to be like yeah, men are pieces of shit and all the fucked up shit that men do, you know, it's not really helping anyone, you know? Right. Like it's not changing say, it. Oh. Right. Yeah. So I see a lot of men's work out there too. That's, that's trying to do this. And I've, I've been part of men's groups and started men's groups. And there's a lot of re- like um, recycling of a, of a particular like male archetype that sometimes happens in these men's groups. And I'm like, Oh, can we please step away from the sort of like, um, you know, appropriated tribalism, you know, mm. and like the chest beating, you know, the it's not, it's not, I don't know that that's really helpful. Um, I mean, a lot of that comes from this idea that we really, you know, men have missed out on a rite of passage to invite them into adulthood. So I understand where that comes from. And again, I might extend that to all all yeah. genders all 100%. we've all missed you know and in, in western culture we've all missed that rite of passage 100 percent, yeah and um and it's a shame right that you know we do see and so in my partner's work right i see you know that thing where men are looking for their mother and you know so many women are looking for their father in that relationship and it's kind of like really playing out in a funny way yeah yeah so so how does that's a perfect segue how does how do you see the men's work carrying over to relationship Hmm. there's a point with a lot of my male clients where they go you know I think I think I need to bring my partner in here can I do you do partners work or couples work (laughs) and I gladly say yes of course you know I'm yeah this is that relational space and getting to apply the the relational tools um, in real time is what gets me going. You know, right now that's like my big spark. I love that. You know, and seeing a couple, um, um, and I and I work with queer couples and poly couples and trysts and things so too. So it's not limited to the heteronormative. I think that all of my listeners' ears just perked up. This is yeah. quite the road we go down. So yes, bring it in. Great. Yeah. So when I say part, I, I'm careful to say partners work because, um, you know, your friend can be a partner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done mediations between friends as well, right? But this thing where men, go, you know, 
go, oh, I really want to bring in my partner and explore this with them. It's, it just lights me up and seeing those aha moments that they can get together. Now, of course, it takes time and energy and money and all the things, right? Um, but yeah, that really gets me going. And so men's work as a vehicle to social repair that starts in relationships and then hopefully trickles out or, or, or you know, spreads outward to community right, is, is my ultimate goal. It may be the tree that I, that I never see the shade of, right? Um, but that's really what I want, is that community repair. Right, I mean, when we, this is what I think so, so deeply about to go back to psychedelic integration, right? Any of the work that we do, whether that's with psychedelics, a healer, a therapist, a coach, we start to change the way we relate to ourselves and how I'm a big internal family system person, how our parts relate mm-hmm. um, to the to the capital S self. And when we lead our life, you know, through that lens of curiosity and compassion and connection and all of these things that, in my opinion, the capital S self really seeks and really wants. When we start to interact with the world differently, the world starts to interact with us differently. 100%. And when you're bringing that into partner's work, it sounds to me like, especially this individual, right? We've got to work on the individual. We've got to work at what is, who is my capital S self? What are my universal truths, right? How do I align my values with my actions? Everything that we kind of talked about before. And then how do we show up that way in our relationship? So what is some of the, what are the experiences your clients are having as they bring in friendships, partnerships, throuples, anything else um, Mm -hmm. with this kind of extreme ownership? Mm -hmm. For, well, I'll I'll just say real talk, right? It's radical. It's a radical approach. And and, um, so you may be familiar, your listeners may be familiar with Marshall Rosenberg and, um, you know, nonviolent communication. my mentor, Nancy Chanteau, has developed something called cooperative communication, which really looks at relationships through the lens of power. And some of this you know, has its roots in transactional analysis and Eric Byrne and things like that. Um, where we're really trying to um, get folks to take this radical responsibility, it's, 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 a, it's a hard work, <laughs> so. Fuck yeah, I'm still working yeah. on it. Here I am, yeah, here I am. <laughs> Not we, and, I, I am still yeah, working yeah. on it. So if I can get folks to do the practices, right, then it can be super transformative and really create a lot of intimacy. But it can, and I tell people this when they start working with me, like you came to me to to climb a wall Mm -hmm. and you get to the top of that wall, right where you're about to get over that wall and you realize like, holy shit, it's nothing but walls. (laughs) Yeah, here's the next one. Maybe there's a little like green patch in between the walls, but like, I'm going to hit that wall. And like, you know, and if we're talking about escalating a relationship to a marriage and, and, you know, maybe including children in that or home ownership or any of these sort of ideals that, you know, Americans tend to have, oh my gosh, a wall, a wall, a wall, a wall. Mm-hmm. And so I say the best thing I can offer you is these practices of cooperative communication where they're essentially your climbing kit right that my like ideally eventually you fire me because you have these tools and you can climb walls together right you know how to do it right oh my gosh I tell my clients that all the time like look 
I think the world of you. And if we could just hang out every Tuesday, like we have been, (laughs) that'd be fine. But my goal is that you don't need me anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Certainly as, as healers, we don't want to foster dependence and that's, um, that's part of it. So like I tell people, nonviolent communication, cooperative communication can feel like pretty awkward at Mm. first. And I say, it's like building a new muscle group, right? If you've ever learned a new sport, right? You really have to be in that beginner's mind be like, I'm not going to be good at this at first. Yes, I know how to talk. (laughs) (laughs) I know how to to sit here and look at my partner, but to use some of this sort of framework can feel a little like funky at first. And then, you know, my teacher references Richard Strozzi Heckler, who is a somatic coach, um, who says it takes 300 repetitions to get something into muscle memory and 3000 to change from one habit to a new habit, right? And um, 3000, well, we can do the math, right? It's oh, not yeah. happening overnight. It's That's long- how long, it, for those listening who ever wanna become a therapist, you have to do 3000 supervised hours before you can be licensed. So <laughs> there we go, guys. Spoken from experience, it takes a long time. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm still working on that myself. I've, uh, you know, so I'm a, I'm a coach and I've gathered many certifications. My undergraduate is in um, human development and family systems, essentially developmental psychology. Mm-hmm. And I've actually like, I've dropped out of LMFT programs a couple of times just because the licensure requirements have not really caught up to what we know now about and like how it's at the root of so many things. Um, so I'm still on my way. <laughs> like, I still, yeah. I still think there's value to that licensure. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly educating myself on how to better help my clients and getting supervision and things like that. So I value it. And I value those 3000 hours you did, you know? It's- oh man, it, it takes a while. And you really do. I mean, it's, it's funny. You talked about the walls. Um, and you being, you know, your communication skills being the, the climbing kit. And I, when I explain grad school, when I explain going back and getting my master's in counseling psychology and essentially right launching into LMFT licensure, um, I explain it like grad school, they gave you a shovel (laughs) and they were like, okay, we're going to start digging and finding the self and every paper you turn in every class you take, every experience you have, you think you're done. You think that yeah. you've like, you know, dug to wherever at this point. And they're like, no, no, keep digging. Like that, that hole can get deeper. Right. And, um, one thing that you said that piqued, piqued my interest. And I would imagine piques listeners interest too. um, cooperative communication and being a new skill, right? We all know how to speak. We all know how to talk. We don't all know how to communicate. And I think that, you know, naming nonviolent communication is so kind of like the, the uh, hallmark of communication skills that we, we tend to teach. So I think that that's a pretty familiar one for listeners, but what are kind of the, the pillars, if you will, of cooperative communication? Yeah. Anyhow, uh, ideally how power works, right? Like, mm. What is power in a relationship, right? And how might that be playing out? For instance, if, I mean, just as a casual example, right? If um, my partner, right, has all a PhD, right? Mm-hmm. But I've never gone to school. Well, all of a sudden the way we transact might be loaded by that power dynamic, right? 
So like one of those first things is really encouraging folks to understand and normalize this is in a society that values competition and scarcity and all these other things, how power plays out mm -hmm. and that it's a factor. We always say like, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Let's talk about those yeah. truths. Those. Yeah. <laughs> Your partner may not be saying what they need that you know that you're going to judge them through whatever lens right and that's that internalized oppression stuff so mm. that's sort of the first one the second one is really understanding the difference between observable facts feelings and stories right um observable facts is what are what a camera might capture if they the camera were mounted on the wall right um they're not loaded with story they're just simply like you moved your body this way Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we'll say things like, well, you came in all pissed off and you slammed the door and that's loaded with story. Actually, what we can, what we can say is you came in, your face looked like this, right? Your body looked like this. You closed the door with a lot of force. It made a loud noise. Well, facts, we can't, those aren't, you know, right. they're not loaded with story. The other thing is uh, understanding the difference between feelings and stories. We, a lot of us know what stories are, but still in communication, we'll say something like, um, well, I feel like you don't like me. That's not feeling at all. That's a mm. story entirely. What's mm -hmm. the feelings of getting folks to understand what the raw feelings are. Right. Feelings might be lonesomeness, right? Fear, right? Um, you know, um, th these kind of, these kind of, are so rarely accessed and I think can like shine a lot of light. So if we have the fact, right? I saw this, right? Your body was in this shape. I felt fear. I felt concern. And I started telling stories. Right. Well, now we have like amazing picture what's going on. What's the story I told? I told the story that you're really pissed off at me and you don't like me. Well, now that person can answer to the story, right? They can say, you know, uh, all right, I hear that you were, you know, scared. I hear that you're telling stories. Here's what's true and what's not true and what's also true about your story. Mm. Right. Um, and then we move to, uh, and I'm, of course, I'm sort of for the sake of your listeners, I'm just speeding through a lot of this stuff. Um, right. This does not all happen in one session, my friends. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, then what comes after that are because a lot of times we get into these, um, you know, arguments with partners or family or even our children. And we think by just expressing our stories and how we feel that we're going to get our, our partner, or our friend or our family member to change their behavior. Right. You're going to be on my really, side now. You're going to see right. through my paradigm. Mm -hmm. Totally. How many times it's like, oh, I feel so, uh, I feel so lost and bad and like, you don't like me and we're expecting that person to be like, oh my God, like, let me just change my whole life to accommodate your feelings. Right. It's pretty unrealistic, right? And usually what it does is causes whoever we're talking to to sort of armor up, right? Yeah. Um, so what this does is actually move to like naming the request and allowing that relationship to have the autonomy to say yes and no. Mm. Well, ultimately, my goal with, with, a, with a partnership is to really get each other to be able to respect the words yes and no from your partner. Really get consent. Can I, go, can I offer you a compliment? Not right now. Okay. Yeah. 
Oh and man, this to... makes me want to launch into a whole consent conversation. I know we don't have really? time right now, but yeah. <laughs> for for the sake of time, really understanding consent and yeah. and respecting the yes or no boundary. Totally. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that people miss a lot in boundary conversation is we only think of boundaries as no boundaries. You're not allowed to do this. You can't do this. I don't like this. And nobody thinks about inviting in the yes boundary. Totally. Great point. I really enjoy when you do this. I respond really well when this happens. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the reframe of what boundaries are and what boundaries mean, how they feel in the body can really help in, in partnership work. Right. Right. In my training, we say that boundary is where you move your body away. Right. But I really like how you're talking about. It's also, it's also what you're agreeing to. Yeah. And getting someone, you know, getting a request out of someone so important. What's the request, right? You're upset. You know, you have a story. What's the request? Right. How often do you find that your clients at that point kind of like freeze? Oh, totally. It's like, I can tell you I'm mad. I can't tell you what's going to make me feel better. I can't tell you what I want. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you move through that? Well, that I would say is one of the biggest parts of the work is getting folks to really work through their internalized oppression, their stories, their embodied, you know, I I work a lot through some somatic techniques and some somatic experiencing. So getting to understand where your body is preventing you (laughs) from doing something um, or encouraging you, right? Like trying to look for that resonance um, to find out what you want. We're not encouraged to know what we want in this culture. Right. We're encouraged to do what we think we should want, right? And we may not have the ability to know what we want in a relationship or in a partnership. So mm-hmm. that's a big part of the individual work, the one-on-one work is how do we really get to figure out who we are and what it is we actually want? Because maybe what we want doesn't actually look like the culture. Now we have a different problem, which is standing up to the culture to say, no, I don't like the way that this has been operating, right? And I feel differently. And what I want looks like this, right? I just had to take a (laughs) big old breath on that one because it's so, it's like sticking it to the man, right? And I put the man in quotation marks, but (laughs) it's so true. You know, I, I love what you're, everything that you have said and how much we're bringing the unconscious to the conscious awareness, how much we're bringing programming that, wasn't ours. I tell people all the time, I hate the idea of your trauma happened for you. It's uh, like, no, it didn't. It happened to you. Mm-hmm. And this is all my opinion, but no, it did not happen for you. However, even though we didn't ask for this, it is your job to heal it. No one else is going to heal it for you. Right? right. And so much of what you're saying is wrapped up in that, right? Like what stories what narratives did you inherit? Did you, you know, totally changed your worldview because of this trauma that happened because of the story that a caretaker told you because of, you know, bring it back to the football coach that told you not to be a pussy, right? Like how many of these things are you holding onto that aren't even yours that you've identified with for so long? Of course, this work is going to be transformative because now we're saying release what you don't want, keep what you Mm do and write the story the way you want. And that's, I don't want to um, undersell how difficult of a journey that can be 
mm-hmm. how rewarding of a journey that can be. Yeah. And if this is sparking your interest, which I hope it is sparking mine, I'm like, damn, can I, uh, can I get a session with David and my partner? Stat, <laughs> um, you know, just know that you're about to embark on a really long journey and that those walls are going to be there. And every single one of them is worth climbing over with, you know, the love and support that you can facilitate for yourself and that you create in your life. Mm-hmm. And for the people that are so interested in working with you, like myself, mm-hmm. I know you mentioned Instagram at the beginning. Are there other ways people can, can work with you, can get a hold of you, can follow your, your journey? Yeah, totally. Um, well, I, the, you know, the easiest way is through my website, which is just ironjohncoaching.com. And um, you can get in touch with me that way. Um, Instagram is ironjohn.coaching. And um, those are the best funnels at the moment just to kind of find me. Um, I'm currently got a lot of things in the works um, with other people. I love to collaborate with other coaches and practitioners. And I work with a breathwork practitioner. We're sort of developing our own psychedelic integration package and things like that. Um, so those are the two best avenues for now to find me. And of course, if you like what you heard, you know, and you want to share my Instagram stories, that's the best way to kind of spread the word about what I do. And there are more people doing, you know, the same radical work. And one last thing I wanted to say about that radical work is why I think it's so worth it. We're in the 11th hour here, Mm. socially, culturally, environmentally, globally. And we need, you know, we need skills for change. You know, we need actual skills and now's the time to skill up and like you kind of said you know it's not maybe not your fault but it's your responsibility i think it's all of our responsibility to skill up if we can right and that investment in the work takes time intimacy takes time we can't be super so efficiently minded and expect to have the intimate relationships we all feel we deserve you know that's going to take investment so i just want to encourage people whether it's with me or someone else um you know, invest in skills, right? And, you know, don't invest in the spiritual bypass stuff that says you, you know, you were given this trauma for, come on, you know, like we, we all got it from somewhere and it's our job now to un-get it, you know, or integrate. And choose what we want to get moving forward. Yeah. David, thank you so much for today's conversation. I, it sparked more questions in me than, and we got so many awesome answers. So Mike is always open. Would absolutely love to have you back, especially as this program launches for breathwork and psychedelic integration. I think that my listeners would, I'm going to say, I'm not going to say we, I'm going to say I would eat that all up. (laughs) (laughs) And I so appreciate it, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much.